you're about to experience a new way to thrive in martial arts by exploring who you are, what you love and standing up for what you believe in. It's time to rise because this is where we challenge and say no to outdated industry norms and say yes to change so that we create a healthier, happier and thriving martial arts community. I'm your host, Laurine Zuhake. Welcome to the Rise to Thrive podcast. In today's episode, I'm delighted to introduce to you Georgia Very. Georgia is a fighter at heart on both personal and educational levels. She holds a black belt in Kyokushin Karate, had several semi-pro kickboxing fights and competes in BJJ as a blue belt. Through her Fightback project, soon to be rebranded as Conscious Combat Club, she offers online and in-person trauma-informed kickboxing classes and teaches other martial arts coaches how to become trauma-informed. Tune in and discover what Georgia is about and what she has in store for us in 2023. Welcome, Georgia. Please tell us who you are. How did you come to martial arts? Yes, so my name is Georgia. I use she and her pronouns. I first started martial arts as a 12-year-old when my mom determined that I was old enough to start adults karate. She didn't want me to start in the kids' class. And I started because of her, because she was training and I saw her competing in kata competitions and non-contact fighting and I was really interested in what she was doing. And when I got started, I took a while to become, I guess, open to doing full contact fighting. And then I reached a point, I guess you could say a tip point, where I, all I wanted to do was full contact fighting. And so that led me to getting my black belt in Kyokushin Karate and then moving on to doing Muay Thai, which I also adore, um, doing some professional Muay Thai fights, and then eventually getting into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which I've now been training for about five years, and I'm a baby blue belt in that. So I guess you could say I'm just a lover of all martial arts across the board, really. I think that there's, there's so much for us to gain on a personal level, at a community level, and I'm sure we can talk about all that today. Sure. I'm curious. Why didn't your mom that you would start in the kids' classes? Um, she thought that I was going to pick up bad habits. She was very strict. Um, she was like, if you go in the kids' class, you'll learn to be soft. So we're going to start you in the adults' class because 12 is old enough in the adults' class. If It was only maybe one year when I started to get interested that you know, she made me wait a little bit longer. It wasn't as though I was six and she was saying, like, you have to wait till you're 12. But, yeah, that was the story. Interesting. Because it is true, that especially in Germany, when kids go to kindergarten, and so some trained them with us already before, and once they go to kindergarten, then all of a sudden they are, like, foul-mouthed. And I'm like, whoa, 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 where, <laughs> where did you find that? And usually I always ask them, like, do you even know what it means? And then their eyes are big, like, what do you mean I don't know? <laughs> And then like, I'm like, okay, just a rule of thumb. If you want to curse, you know, normally I'm, I mean, Dutch, so I'm, I don't mind too much, but I was like, if so, you need at least to know what you're saying and who you're addressing. 100%. All right. So um, how was it that you changed or edit on from martial arts to martial arts? Were there specific reasons that you were think, finding like it was not all round enough or you wanted just a new adventure? How, how did that go? Yeah, Muay Thai was a new adventure and a new city. I moved from 
a smaller city. I'm based in Melbourne in Australia. So I moved from a smaller city into Melbourne, capital city. And at the time, I wanted to join a more commercial gym um, because here in Australia, I'm not sure how it is around the world, but karate clubs tend to be very small and you'll have maybe like a community hall or even if it's a dedicated space, it will be say Monday and Wednesday nights and those are the only two days that training is available. And that didn't suit me when I was 19 and I was Mm -hmm. working full time and I was going to university and I was doing so many things. I needed a flexible training schedule. So I joined a commercial gym so that I could train at lunchtime or in the morning or in the evening. And they had Muay Thai, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, boxing, you know, like sort of the classic mixed martial arts gym. And I actually tried Jiu-Jitsu at that time. And I'll never forget, it was a class that was taught by Craig Jones, who is like a really, really high level competitor. And I didn't really realized there was a distinction between all levels and beginners I thought all levels means like anyone can go I'm I'm of all level so I I went and I think somebody tried to do a single leg takedown on me and I didn't know how to fall I didn't know what was happening and my knee tweaked a little bit and for probably two years after that moment I would tell anyone like Brazilian jiu-jitsu is dangerous like don't go near it Muay Thai is way safer (laughs) That's what I thought then. Um, So that was pretty funny. And I think really now my opinion is probably the opposite. And that was a big part of my change from Muay Thai into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, at least as a competitor, because I still teach Muay Thai, kickboxing, and I love striking. But for me, my personal sport, for my hobby, what I want to put my time into, I reached two difficult parts in my kickboxing career one was if you can imagine using the brain that I have I started to notice that maybe something was a bit amiss with my sleep and with my attention and with my mind being a bit fuzzy and I started to realize maybe this is TBI or traumatic brain injury this is cumulative head trauma because I'm getting punched in the face a lot, whether it's sparring or in competitions. So I came to think, how can my brain, the brain that is sort of damaged, make this decision? It might be even worse. So that was one of my big things was thinking, I really should take a break to make sure that I don't end up with long-term brain damage. Because for me, I don't see myself being a world champion in kickboxing. I do it because I like it, because it's fun, but I don't want to go to that level. I know what it takes to go to that level. And I have other things in my life that I want to pursue career wise and things like that. So that was one thing. And then the other thing for me was the weight cutting was really tough. I used weight cutting as a way to mask the eating disorder that I was battling for many years. And I had amenorrhea, which means the absence of getting your period uh, because my body weight was just way too low. My training load was too high. And I could, at social events, just tell people I'm preparing for a fight and I was always preparing for a fight. And nobody would question me when I said, I won't eat that, I'm not drinking any alcohol, which is like people's choices. But I was definitely taking it to the extreme and it was nobody was asking me if anything was wrong because it was the given thing. Of course, you're going to look really skinny if you're cutting weight for fights all of the time. And so it was really like the enabling thing that uh, 
I worked out I'm having all these other health problems. Like I mentioned some of the brain things, but I was having gut issues as well. And I started to think maybe my body needs its hormones back. You know, maybe it's a good idea for me to start to gain the weight back. Um, but I'm very competitive. And so if I'm training in something, I want to compete. Um, so I started doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu while I was overseas. I went to Bali with my partner and I took all my Muay Thai stuff. I took all of my Jiu-Jitsu stuff. And just when I got there, I was like, you know what? I'm going to start eating rice. I'm going to try training something that's a little bit different so that I don't get tempted to take a fight. And so I was still training a lot. I was training at least once, usually twice a day, but I was eating and I had in my mind that I can compete at any weight class in jiu-jitsu and same day weigh-in. And, you know, maybe I'll aim to, when I compete, do open weight so that I don't have the temptation to just be as small as possible. And that really helped me. That certainly helped me in recovery from dieting. And I haven't dieted really since then, even though I've been competing and my competition has gotten more and more serious since that so that's been really positive it's also like the eating disorder kind of was it a more a response to the fact that you were taking fights and just training so much or was there a different reason and martial arts was just indeed as you say a way to mask it like was it kind of already there or was it more like one of those um well unhealthy byproducts that can happen when you just compete still on a very high level no i think it was there before i started taking pro fights It sounds strange to say, but I got much better at doing what I had wanted to do when I started taking fights, um, as in I got better at knowing how to cut weight quickly while training. I was more effective at the dieting that I was trying to do, but I was eating and binging and then cutting calories before I started competing, and I would say that was more a byproduct of my mental health, social media, things like that. And then it was like the enabling and also the fuel to the fire was competing. Yeah, it's like, um, unfortunately, so common and so devastating. I mean, also sometimes when I read about also UFC fighters that they have to cut like absolutely crazy, they just cannot take the fight because they end up in the hospital. It's, it's, uh, it's, it is a real science to cut healthy, but also so much can go wrong. So I find it a very important topic. Also in uh, our upcoming Fry Fry Method, Nettie Boss, who also struggled with eating disorder herself will also then talk about that to create like a healthier um a healthier relationship with food because that's so important especially need as you say when you are training average twice a day plus all the other things you're doing that is so much output both physical and mental so yeah you need you need some energy you know to replenish that so okay so you then you you switched or like added jiu-jitsu And um, I understand, I am, I also love competing. I'm happy that soon I can compete again at the end of the month because then COVID and ACL reconstruction. So I'm really, I'm like refinding my kind of fighting mindset because it's different than when you're just like training or teaching so much. So I'm really a bit like reinventing myself. Um, so um, what is different when you fight Muay Thai, like striking and grappling based fights? Mm. I mean, there's a lot of similarity, um, but I think in jiu-jitsu you tap, right? And that's quite significant in your mindset where you go into a kickboxing fight deciding 
I'm not going to quit. No matter what happens, I'm not going to quit. That's the mentality that you need because if you don't, as soon as somebody starts punching you in the face, you're going to want to quit. It's terrible. And it's very different to even sparring that you do like in class. So you have this like going to war, going to die kind of mentality that would be harmful in jujitsu. You could break your arm from not tapping. Right. So there's like a fear of I might lose and I'm going to do this really like intense thing. But I think jujitsu in a way requires a mindset that is really balanced between how, you know, you're going to be aggressive. You're going to come up and score points or, you know, you're going to make your grips and thinking like, okay, here's all the ways that I'm going to push my game plan and I'm going to be aggressive, but also keeping a state of calm and awareness of the risks versus reward um, is different to me than what it was like when I was fighting in Muay Thai, especially because for me, I always have a bigger lead up to doing a Muay Thai fight. It's like minimum eight weeks, usually more fight camp. The weight cut is extreme. And the last week, you know, you're doing all these, these things with water, spending time in the sauna, you do the weigh in the day before, usually you'd have to take time off work. So it becomes this huge event. Whereas jujitsu for me is like, I still do the preparation. I'm still preparing. I'm still making a game plan. But then on Monday, I'm probably going to be back in the gym most of the time, unless, you know, I'm really, really fatigued and it was like a two day thing, but then I'm probably still going to be back Tuesday. I'm, I'm hoping to have no injuries. Whereas Muay Thai, I'm expecting to have injuries. And I think that's like a big difference. And that's been helpful to me. I think that I have had that experience and I can see the difference in competitors where I'm calmer in in a jiu-jitsu space where it's like, I'm not expecting to get injured. You know, if something goes wrong, I get injured, but I'm not expecting that I'm going to get injured here. So it's a little bit more fun in that way, but it's a different kind of intensity too. My first jiu-jitsu fight, um, for those who, who practice jujitsu who are listening, I'm not sure. Are all your listeners jujitsu people or is it a mix? It's a mix. Okay. We also have like, yeah, because Emma, you know, was just uh, earlier. Her episode will also air soon. So, you know, I kind of want to um, get it to the martial arts world in, in general. But of course, since I'm mainly a BJ practitioner myself, the lion's share at this point will still be jujitsu practitioners. Cool. Got it. I didn't want to be like, explaining what is a guard to people and then people being like come on this is a jiu-jitsu podcast um but my first fight my plan was to pull guard so it was like to take the bottom position and try and attack from there and I got passed immediately like my plan was to play the bottom and do really well and just ended up with a person squishing me on top of me and I was like this is the worst idea ever this is so bad my grips hurt so much like my forearms were on fire I never felt anything like that before I was like whoa this is this is a different kind of intensity as well even though it doesn't have the to the death it's still a different kind of intensity yeah this is like a discussion I've had lately there was a post from a lady who was talking about BJ competition and that she's like yeah as if I'm almost ready to kill and I was kind of like really like I mean are you also prepared to die that's like was my my main question then like if you and I found also that they're like, yeah, of course, I don't want to injure anybody. But, you know, if it happens, then that. And I thought, no, it's not a passive thing. Like, you decide. 
you decide. You can feel that very well. Like I thought it's a conscious decision when you whether you want to continue and I don't know, break this arm, even if they don't want to tap or this and that. I mean, just training in the gym. Obviously, when I realize I'm rolling with somebody who, you know, has a day where they do not want to tap, I'm not going to go through it and I just do something else. And I know in the competition it's a little bit different, but I, what I found problematic was that it was written in the passive sense as if this athlete doesn't have control over that. I mean, look, freak accidents happen, right? But when it comes to like applying and submission, I was really thinking like, yeah, but you get to decide that. I mean, of course, the other also should keep themselves safe as well. I mean, I mean, of course, there should be also a ref. I mean, of course, with kids' competitions, again, a whole different thing than with adults. But I always found like also me having been in real street situations um my one of my problems in jiu-jitsu for instance is that i need to learn to assertive aggressive i will never be because i know what it's like to really be on when something happens on the street and um so i cannot to me bj is just really a game like sport so when i read people saying like oh it's like life and death and this and that i cannot take that seriously because i think it isn't like when you get hit in the face that's a different thing like it's different. I mean, I did some striking before and uh, just more from campos and more like it's traditional, but still I fought. And when you get hit in the face, it's like something else. But that also would fire me up quicker because you're much more, it's, it's as you say, a different intensity. So to me, indeed, I find um, Muay Thai, kickboxing, MMA, much more fights than grappling is. Yes. But I think it is also important to make the distinction that they are also sports. So in Muay Thai, if somebody sweeps me and I hit the floor, I'm safe at that point in time, right? It's not my brain that's in damage or in threat of being damaged from the fact that I allowed myself to be swept. If I get swept, I lose points and I like am embarrassed the other person gets to put their fists up and I have to stand back up again. It's annoying. That's just one example of rules. And there are many rules within Muay Thai. And so when I'm working with clients and they'll say, you know, can I do this or could I do this? And I'll say, well, for our sport, that's actually illegal. You know, Mm -hmm. you can't do a 12-6 elbow. You can't elbow straight down on top of someone's head in the street. If that's what you remember, you can do that if that's what you want to do because there are no rules, right? But there's a clear distinction and that is why I'm very careful to make sure that we're not talking about Muay Thai as being self-defense because it is not Mm -hmm. right the rule set really prohibits it from being self-defense and it also protects us from being really really hurt there's always going to be a ref that's going to stop when there's a TKO we're always going to get a count if we're non-responsive and we're not you know, fighting back, which means the ref will stop the fight and start counting down, count up to eight. There are many things in place that protect us that are different to a self-defense scenario. And for that reason, it's a sport as well too, but I still consider it like a fight. You know, you're a fighter. I didn't really consider anyone a jujitsu fighter. No, it's more like competitor. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. I have the same feeling in, for me being BJ now, the main, the main thing that I do. All right. So let's move on. How did you end up um, starting the Fightback project and trauma-informed kickboxing? Yeah, so while I was competing, I was working for a company, it's actually based off a German company here in Australia called Kiza, which is like a clinical strength training program. So I have exercise scientists, which is my background, that's what I studied at university, and physiotherapists. 
and they work to treat predominantly neck and back pain. And I was really interested in that time in what's called biopsychosocial model of pain or the biopsychosocial model of pain, which is how our pain is related to our physiology, so like how our tissues are affected, our bones, etc., but also what stresses are there in our lives, how do we perceive our pain and how does our mindset affect the fact that that pain seems to be persistent or chronic and we're mostly working with chronic pain. So I was kind of starting to get interested in mental health from that lens and trying to help some of my patients. And I was explaining this to one of my clients who was actually a trauma psychologist. Um, and he knew that I did kickboxing because I'm pretty sure at that time I was weight cutting. So everyone I met knew that I was doing kickboxing. I think I would put it as a caveat at the start of all our meetings. If I'm a bit out of it, that's why. Um, but he actually said to me, you know, I've always wanted to be able to refer my clients to learn kickboxing because I think there's this huge capacity for martial arts training in terms of how we somatically process trauma, which means how we process trauma at a body level. And he was doing a lot of somatic work. He said to me, if that's something that interests you, you might go and read a book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk and see if the concepts click for you, if they're interesting to you and let me know. I went and read it and it's like my favorite type of book are books where you're learning theory but you're hearing like real life stories in the way that those are applied um and like it's around mental health where I find the stories are just always quite interesting as I know some people don't like the sin the sensationalization of mental health and there's merit to that as well too but anyway me I really like reading those types of books and so I was enamored with this idea and I came back to him and I said okay what would be required for us to start this work because I am working full-time I am training full-time and where would we do it what would we do if we were going to do it and it was basically a dead end because the amount of hurdles that they felt like there were to be able to start the program were too many. But in that time, I met his boss who owned the psychology clinic where he was working and her name's Deb and she's just the biggest angel in my life. Um, we started doing a little bit of work together with some of her clients because her clinic specializes in eating disorders, um, getting them into doing strength training. But nothing really major until COVID hit and everyone in my company lost their jobs. There was, you know, nobody knew what was going to happen. So there was mass stand down and I had time. And then the government said, you know, we're going to give everybody an allowance basically while you're locked down and you can't work. So I was okay. And I, for the first time thought, well, what if I didn't work there? What if I wasn't doing that kind of work? What do I really want to be doing? And I was thinking that at the same time as everyone was exercising online, all of a sudden it was an acceptable thing because it was the only thing we could do. So I called Deb and I called Liam, who's the other psychologist, and said, remember that idea? What if we did it for real? What if we actually started this program now, during COVID online, I don't see why kickboxing can't be online. 
in my mind, I was like, it could be like karate, which is very non-contact. So I worked with both of them and each of them referred me to some more psychologists who were trained in a model called somatic experiencing, which is a body-based way to process trauma. And we had many revisions of what a program might look like. And I researched a lot about trauma-sensitive yoga. Um, I was reading a lot of different books, literature, trying to see if I was going to do a kickboxing program, what would it look like? And we ended up with a skeleton, which then got pilot tested with four women. And it was incredible. Like as I was teaching it, I was like, this is exactly what I want to be doing with my life. You know, I started exercise science because I loved combat sports and I wanted to do something at university that connected with what I was passionate about but I just didn't care about working with athletes I like being an athlete but I'm just not interested in being the two percent that's going to make you better or or worse at you know your strength and hope that's going to translate to your martial art which is what strength and conditioning coaches are really subjected to and this was purposeful This was a way to apply everything that I've been learning throughout my life in a way that was super meaningful. We had really, really great outcomes for the clients that I worked with. So I ran another program and another program. And when I had started the program, I'm very like action oriented. And I was nervous that nobody was going to join because like, who am I? I've never run this before. I have no experience. So I started a podcast because I felt like that was going to at least give me some sort of action that I could be taking that felt positive. It just so happened that program kind of took off at the same time. But the podcast was amazing because it meant that I got to connect with people like yourself, like a lot of researchers, practitioners around the world and ask them what their programs look like in like disguised as a podcast basically like I published everything of course and the podcast is doing well but that's to me almost like a side benefit of the fact that I got to have all these great conversations that then informed my program and I realized that I had a network of practitioners that I, I wasn't sure if it existed and actually one of the guests that I had on Kathy Van Ingen who runs a program she's kind of stepped away a little bit now, but she founded a program called Shape Your Life in Canada, which is trauma-informed boxing. And she was wanting to organize a thing where practitioners and researchers would meet up. And I was like, well, you're really busy. You're a professor at a university. I've got the time. I'll do that. So I organized a two-day event where a bunch of people from around the world got together And we spoke about what trauma-informed martial arts meant to us, what was inherently therapeutic about martial arts and, you know, how we were all working differently in different styles, especially striking versus grappling versus self-defense focused programs. Um, And that's just been wonderful. You know, it was really great to share ideas and, and have that as an ongoing thing as well too. And that, of course, informed then my program. And then I took some of the knowledge from that as well as everything that I had been working on and I started working with martial artists who hadn't been running programs because people kept asking me how they could start a program like mine. And I was like, well, I'll just start teaching people. So I started teaching people, of course. And now there are like some sister schools. We have a sister school in Kentucky. We have another one in British Columbia. One's jiu-jitsu 
The other one is kickboxing. We have some more that are like in the works, ready to be announced as affiliates soon. And we work really closely together doing like peer support, basically, where we catch up and say about what problems we're having and what, you know, things that have been going well so that we can borrow ideas from each other. And yeah, the program's just kind of escalated from there, really. I should say that online moved to in-person when we came out of lockdown in Australia, in Melbourne in particular, which is the city where I'm in. We had about a year total days in lockdown. I think it was like 370 days total. It was a long time. And when we came out, we were in and out of lockdown. So it was like this online, in-person, online, in-person transition And now the program still runs both online and in person because I do find a lot of people really like the online format. And then also geographically, a lot of people aren't near a trauma-informed martial arts gym yet, but the world is changing. So, yeah, that's kind of where the program is now and and how it started. It's such a long story. Yeah, I will ask some questions uh, in between sections. Um, It's funny. We have something in common because I actually – transformed my PhD about pain behavior because I was like in academia I reach what handful of people but if I transform it in a much more hands-on approach I get to work with real people actual people that need it so the impact would be much greater so also from my own experiences with trauma and then of course pain behavior because I had then more than from a historical cultural perspective um, but you know pain indeed transformed it and kind of pulled the Denaher by stopping the PhD. But actually, in a way, my PhD is in many ways just, and I think for you as well, it's like what we do now. Like it's, it's ever ongoing, it's ever growing, and your impact is huge because you have affiliates, it's worldwide. So congratulations. I mean, that's hard work and it's paying off. So that's amazing to hear. And um, I have a question. Like uh, recently, I, Bessel van der Kolk, he's Dutch, so he, he came for an interview uh, in the Netherlands and where he spoke indeed about the physical part of trauma and how we need indeed physical movement. It can, of course, can be music, can be art, but indeed also just sports to help us heal. Mm. Now, what I found very fascinating was that in the newspapers in in the Netherlands, some uh, psychologists were calling him a charlatan, that he doesn't understand trauma, and that is like, yeah, I was I was kind of like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. So I listened to the whole thing, and I mean, I love this book as well because it's so. We are human beings, like it, I think any living being, it's holistic. It's never just one thing. And we also know from neuroscience that the moment that the rational brain goes offline, like there, we cannot think our way out of it anymore. That's like we're then past that point. So you need different interventions. So I also was kind of wondering why they did not really look at recent research also from a neurobiological perspective. But I found it so fascinating that they really called him a charlatan because he kind of claimed that, yes, talk therapy is a thing, but it will only help you so far, which is something I experienced myself as well. So I'm biased there because it's also my opinion. What is your opinion how uh, physical somatic based practices like martial arts, how that helps people with trauma? So when we have listeners here right now who are a bit like, okay, but how can martial arts from a physical point of view help? Yeah, I mean, there's so much to that. I could, I could talk for like an hour about this, so I'll try and keep it somewhat succinct. Um, I think where it links up a lot to the things that get taught in talk therapy is that we really do need as humans to have experiences in order to change our belief systems. So an example of that is there's an idea that you can 
just like think positive or, you know, think things like I am safe. This is a common one when like in talk therapy, it's like as soon as you start to feel that things are, you know, you're having a flashback or you're getting triggered, just think I am safe now or telling people you're safe now. All of these things might help some people and they definitely do help some people. But a lot of the time your brain is smarter than you being able to just tell it things you know I can't just tell my brain you're going to win this competition if I didn't train because I'm the voice in my head's gonna be like you didn't even train how are you gonna win right and it's the same thing we're being like how can I know that I'm safe if I've never felt safe in my body and so one of the big things that we work at is first of all where is my body and how do I connect to my body? And for a lot of trauma survivors, that's really difficult. The idea of sitting quietly and focusing on what sensations you're feeling or just your breath or even yoga a lot of the time can be too slow for a lot of trauma survivors because there's a lot of space for intrusive thoughts to rush in. And we really do need a break from those if we are going to reconnect to our bodies. The other thing is that our body has been the source of our trauma a lot of the time. And so it's not a safe place. We have not learned that it's a safe place. And so in order to change that, in order to change the neural pathways, first you have to practice connecting to a disconnected body. And that takes time and repetitions and you want to do it in a way that's accessible. And so for a lot of clients that I work with, for example, they're uncomfortable sitting in a stretch that they hold for a long time in yoga, but they are okay to feel their shoulders while they're punching, you know, and that can sometimes be the impetus that brings on that aha moment of being like, oh, I can feel fatigue in my body. I can feel fatigue during the session and the next day. Um, I can feel my feet twisting as I'm developing rotational power while I do a hook. All of these little things start to teach you, oh, I can feel my body. And once you have a connection to your body or what I call a blueprint of where your body is in the world, where we start to develop an idea of, okay, I know I have shoulders, but what does that feel like? I know I have legs, but what does that feel like? Then we can start to use our body as the site to guide our ability to calm ourselves down. So our ability to insert a gap in between feeling triggered and a response And again, that's very experiential, as in you need to practice doing that to believe that you're going to be able to do that. So talking about something and telling someone next time you feel stressed, focus on whatever, your breath, five, four, three, two, one, look around the room. People need to actually have had experiences of practicing that. And I think martial arts has a huge, huge benefit there to even some other physical movement practices, which Everything has its pros and cons. But one of our big benefits is that we practice feeling our heart rate go up. Your heart rate's going to go up when you practice kickboxing or jiu-jitsu or any martial art because you're exerting yourself. And some of that feels a little bit like anxiety and stress. And, you know, you've felt that come back down because you want to practice in a way that's sustainable. So we're not just redlining people the whole way through and that's part of the trauma-informed piece. So... You've got proof now that your heart rate can go up and come back down. You've got proof that you can influence your heart rate coming back down. And in my program, we do targeted activities to practice this. And that all shows up for you as evidence that you can do things 
So then you change the way you think about things. And I think that's where it really ties in to rather than just talking about something until you believe it or talking about something until you change your mind, changing your mind by doing is our human nature. We would do it that way in every other aspect of our life except for the mental health where that idea is a charlatan's idea or, or whatever it is that you know, people who are still very, very married to talk therapy being the only way. And I think it's interesting that nobody that I know who works in a somatic space or who does trauma-informed martial arts would say talk therapy doesn't work. They'll just say it doesn't work for everybody and we need alternatives. I think that's also the much more nuanced yeah, approach. Like like I said, I was kind of shocked when I kind of opened a newspaper and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> They're attacking Basel? Like, what? But I think indeed the, the thing with people with trauma indeed is that the body, when you don't feel safe in the body, like it starts all from there. And what you say, like we've also with these positive affirmations, I think the moment you create undeniable proof that you can do it or that it is possible, that's I think when these beliefs start changing also in a sustainable way as you say you cannot be like oh you know i'm so good i'm just gonna i'm just gonna think myself in in winning the worlds but i didn't train that's not sustainable like also on social media i find it's quite harmful with people saying oh everything is possible you just need to, to change your mindset and there are things where i'm kind of like that is also the other extreme because in the end it is a process like it, it, it has to be as you say sustainable so we need to create this proof that it's possible so when when somebody starts feeling their shoulder and feeling like hey i or my heart rate goes up but i can also regulate it down that is control back because often people who suffered from traumatic experiences they feel like they had they had no choice they have no control but like this they get some control back and that's why i think it is so so important in general, whether it's martial arts or in any school system or any system where you learn or deal with other human beings and you a teacher, that I think it's so important to understand trauma. And indeed, regarding yoga, my first yoga was a trauma-informed yoga teacher. And um, when I later in India did my yoga teaching course, they always said, close your eyes. Mm -hmm. And I just hated it. And in, in, in the beginning, I was a bit confused because most people, they just close their eyes and I was there fighting, literally fighting with myself because, and in, of course, in the end, it was just, and I learned that afterwards when I started to really become trauma-informed um, teacher myself, but I didn't know that at the time that I just didn't feel safe in my body. It became better. We were there like for six weeks. So halfway through, I felt safe. And then it was indeed not a problem. But then I also was thinking like, yeah, that is something where I thought that a teacher should offer the opportunity to close the eyes or keep them open. And also since we know that trauma can have different, I mean, some are hyper aroused, some are hypo aroused. So for me, for instance, an active practice would have been better. That's why I also always say like, if meditation freaks you out, doesn't mean you suck. Sometimes, especially with trauma, people say, oh, yeah, meditate, it will calm you down. Maybe you don't need calming down. Maybe you need firing up a little because often trauma is seen like, yeah, you know, you need to calm down because you're hyper aroused. And I'm like, that's not always the case. And I think that programs like martial arts, I think is also nice because you can, the sliding scale is so nice because also with jujitsu, yeah, you can have a hard competitive role, but you can also have a flow role or just do some, some games where the stakes aren't so high. So you don't get so aroused so quickly. So yeah, that were my, like my thoughts on that. And indeed with yoga, as you say, it, I think it can do a lot of harm because especially with women uh, survivors of rape 
they their their hips area is usually something that feel numb or is disconnected. So if if they would go into a random yoga class, it's not trauma informed, and one PT says, "Oh, we're just gonna do Padakonasana, we're gonna open up the hips." Opening up the hips can be so traumatic because all of a sudden they may start feel something that can be so re-triggering, re-traumatizing, triggering, or just too much that if they would have opened a little bit, that would have been a, a, a good practice to get to feel their hips again. But too much, and that's like this this sliding scale that I think that many coaches should learn about. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I even talk to my clients as if they're always going to be different on any given day. You know, like we're not going to find that you are tending to needing to increase your energy or you're tending to need to calm down. Every class at the start of class, we do a battery check-in, which we might even think of as like a window of tolerance check-in. But I use the language battery because it makes sense to most people. So we'll check in and say, what's your battery doing today? What percentage are you at? Or can you just get a feeling for it? You don't have to put a number on it. And this is going to look different for you depending on where you're at. So you might be on 60% today because you've been really stuck inside. You feel like you really just need to hit something. You need to move. You need to expel some energy. Or you might be on 60% because you're really overworked. You're really tired. You haven't been sleeping well. And you really need a restorative session today where you're just moving your body. And in both cases, if we can honor that, then you should end the session with more energy than when you started the session. That is a really good goal to work towards in all types of practices, martial arts and otherwise. Exercise doesn't have to be draining, especially when it's a trauma-informed program. That's very rarely why people are coming to us to try and work as hard as possible. So once you start to think, okay, I can tell where my battery's at, I can tell what's draining it, then you can set a word or a phrase, so it might be pause, it might be rest, it might be focus, it might be release. It could be anything that's feeling resonating for you that can just be like an intention that you come back to throughout the class that helps you to honour what your body's needs are. And I think, like you said, around choice, then reminding clients over and over again by saying, if you like, when you're ready, you might like to, and giving them invitations which they know they can say no to or change in any way that they need to in order to honour that intention and the needs of their body is healing in so many ways, right? Not only does it make the practice doable, but it also helps people have experiences. And again, we come back to this piece around you need to have proof. It gives them lived experience with having their choices honoured. And so many times trauma is the result of not having choice. In fact, almost exclusively trauma is when you do not have a choice by nature. Yeah, so for our listeners from uh, Jiu-Jitsu, just a very simple, practical example about, I like the battery um, metaphor, is that when we roll, typically I ask decide for yourself whether you want more competitive rolls or flow rowing. Because if, yeah, if you have a regular a regular class so it's not necessarily a trauma-informed class but say you're in a gym and you feel that your battery today is i don't know maybe even 40 percent. who knows that you can voice like well today i don't feel like competitive roles i would like flow roles because then also your partners know what's up so as a coach i tend to especially when it's with a bigger group i ask 
who feel like competitive roles, who feel like flow roles, because then the others know what to anticipate, what to expect. And also that if they then agree to rule a person that says nah, today, no competitive roles, then they also cannot get frustrated because they know what they get into. Because we talk about, you know, these things. And sometimes some people say to me like, yeah, but, you know, I have a room full of big guys and stuff and I, I don't want to ask them about their battery. So I say, yeah, then just ask, do you feel like flow or competitive roles today? Mm. So I think sometimes we also need to think about how can we translate these terms? Because some people think, yeah, trauma forms, just cuddling. You just like, I'm like, it's not. It's creating a space where people can also train hard and how that looks like can be completely different for every person. But you want to create it. They can dare to venture out of their comfort zone or maybe stay in it if they have a bit like a lower battery charge on that day, but that they know that they will feel better afterwards. And I think sometimes, and I'm also really thinking about this and maybe you have some input there as well, I mean, the trauma-informed terms, they are gentle. Of course, they should be. But I also think sometimes we need to find some other terms for it, especially in the BJ world, because many are like, oh, I don't feel happy. You know, if they don't feel, they don't, don't align with these terms, even though I do believe that they align with the principles of it. So yeah, so, so I try to kind of create a list with things like, yeah, do you want a flow or a competitive role um, to kind of, bypass sometimes these things because some people just find it floating you know yeah absolutely I think trauma informed as a term is a big turn off to a lot of people and I dream of a time where we don't need that language and we can say person-centered because that's really what it is it's honoring people's needs it's showing up for people as they are it's helping people with different abilities, different energy levels, different battery levels, different everything, be individuals on the mat or however you train. Um, so I think, yeah, in terms of ways that people can translate some of that, one thing that has been really helpful for me and for some other friends of mine has been to pay attention to your breath, if that feels safe and comfortable for you, and the breath of your training partner and just to remind them to breathe, you know, especially if you say at the start, and this is something that often happens, right? No one's at fault, but often we'll say, okay, we're going to flow roll. And then one person's like, mm, this flow roll is not going the way that I wanted it to go. So I'm going to turn it up a little bit. The other person turns it up. All of a sudden we're full rolling. And at that point, you know, it can be easy to be like, hey, we said we were going to flow roll, but, you know, you're also in a community space where you want to, make friends with people. You don't necessarily want to turn somebody off. So an alternative might be to say, hey, are you holding your breath right now? Are you okay? And that's just a circuit breaker, just like grounding strategies are a circuit breaker in order for us not to get stuck ruminating on looping thoughts or emotions. This is a circuit break for your partner to go like, oh, maybe I am holding my breath and tensing my jaw and fixing my grips and how could I possibly be holding my breath if we were flow rolling, you know? Um, and even if we're generally rolling, getting someone to be like, focus on your breathing is really, really helpful. If you're at a much higher level than somebody, you know, if you're rolling with a white belt, it's going really, really intense. Or if you're sparring with somebody who's really, really like lower intent, like lower skill level than you, I'll also over-exaggerate modeling breathing. You know, I'll be like, I'll move away. I'll create a long guard and I'll be like, <sighs> and the other person usually follows because we're always mirroring each other in sparring, especially in striking. It's like I do a roundhouse kick, the other person does a mm -hmm. roundhouse kick. Most people do that. Um, 
And that's how humans are wired as well too. So that can be really helpful is just to model that behavior. You don't even have to use language or you can just say something like, are you holding your breath or are you remembering to breathe? I think it's so important indeed that often we just need to interrupt and it doesn't have to be like this super invasive, um, direct way of interrupting. So I really like, we also often use the breath that I'm like, yeah, when you realize you're holding your breath or you're really panting too hard and you're using too much strength because you have in, in jiu-jitsu, we just recently started a fundamentals course and um, I'm tiny. And then some of the new big guys are like, oh, but I am so sorry. I, I know I, I, I use so much strength, but I don't know how. And I'm like, you'll learn that. I said, but indeed, first step is just be, be try to be mindful of your breathing because the moment you're, you're breathing kind of is a decent, you know, nice pace then you also ease up and then you're not so 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 rigid and so so tense you'll be a whole lot less tired i can also assure you <laughs> but we also we have some funny things like uh, we have one of our purple belts he um, he starts singing when he realizes and humming something when uh, when somebody is like soup like like using and not even saying space but really using a lot of force and like not breathing anymore and he just starts like singing and it's so funny because he has for one he has a very good singing voice but then there's a like busy and then you see this moment where the brain realizes that their partner is like singing and then they're like what and then he just smiles and he's like yeah take a deep breath and we continue and that and it's so funny because actually people laugh so laughing of course is also super relaxing so we really try to kind of and of course we play games like we described this also in our project we have like so many games that you can play but one that i like a lot is like um bean bags or or small balls that both have one and then you roll and then when you win you get two so yeah you win but then you get both balls <laughs> so then when you continue the other has like everything free um but that's also a way to kind of it's more like a constraints led approach that you you take some strength out and they have to think more and they're like wait wait a minute time out and they instead of that they really get in this kind of icy red kind of um mindset they become much more playful so play is for, for us also a very important way to you need to regulate the, the, the breathing and um lower the stakes so that they are like it's okay to, to be tapped it's okay it's just you know we just want to find solutions and have fun whilst doing it so thank you for it these are really good i like i like your your approach i was like briefing yourself to need co-regulate your you know your your partner so with the Last bit of our, our, our interview, you mentioned that you're going to change the, the name of the Fight Back project. Yes. So hopefully at the time where this airs, if folks try and look up the website, the domain might have changed. It's such an awkward time at the moment. I don't know if anyone's ever rebranded. Um, but like my website is half rebuilt and the domain is there and I'm using the new name with some people. But uh, last year we decided like a big priority for us is to open what's known as a social enterprise. So this is a business, so a gym that runs for a purpose. And for us, our purpose is access. So providing access to martial arts to women who have experienced trauma that otherwise would not be able to get access, both because they haven't been able to find trauma-informed care, but also because of financial restraints. And in part of that process, I worked with a team and it was really interesting for me to explain martial arts and trauma-informed practice to people who don't know anything about it, which is what you need to do when you want government funding and grants and investment. 
and they were like, why is it called the fight back project if it's not self-defense? And I was like, I kind of like that it's like that because it was always a good conversation starter around that. But if we got to a point where it was like, well, it doesn't really serve you to have to go through explaining all of that. And to me, it is really important that what we are teaching is not a self-defense program. Like I said, you cannot learn Muay Thai and then expect that that's a self-defense course. Those are two different things. I don't have anything against self-defense. I think a lot of people who work in advocacy and domestic violence shelters and trauma healing spaces are a bit aversive to self-defense programs because of the victim-blaming connotation. I do personally believe that when taught in the right way, self-defense can be really empowering but also we're not teaching a self-defense program. We're teaching a kickboxing program that helps people connect to their bodies, learn that they have agency, practice grounding strategies and be a part of a community. Um, so we changed the name from the Fight Back Project to the Conscious Combat Club, which I really love because it encapsulates the fact that not only trauma survivors will benefit from a trauma-informed space. And that was the other thing that I really wanted to capture in what we were talking to people about is that we want to create a space where you don't need to identify as having had trauma to be able to want to train somewhere where you're allowed to have a say in the way that the practice is going to look, where people are conscious of your needs and where you're conscious of your training partner's needs and you're really aware of that. Um, so that was where conscious combat came from. And we really do want to start like a little community club um, that will service, you know, it's it's disappointing that geographically you can't reach more people in one go, but I feel like the first step in something like this becoming widespread across all of Australia is having one gym. So we're focusing on opening our flagship gym this year, uh, which if anyone's in Melbourne will be in the inner north. So, and I have, uh, that will definitely happen this year and, so certain that the universe is aligned for that to happen for us and we'll move out of doing pop-ups which we are still doing so I am still running classes at the original psychology clinic that I worked with person-centered psychology in South Melbourne and we run graduate classes at Krav Maga school and we still have the online classes but we're just ready to get a forever home. Well that's really amazing and I think you know growing it's always a process and it's always kind of a give or take but I think in the end it will be better for almost everyone and you will also find new solutions as you go you'll be you know you will be presented with different uh, problems to solve but i think it's there's so much growth in in that process and solving them and i personally really like like uh, the combat the conscious combat club because with the fight back i was thinking it's it's um you're reactive you know you're fighting back to something whereas when you're conscious about something you can avoid a lot because you start consciously to begin with which i find extremely powerful because it's kind of instead of that you you know like that you react to something um it you kind of take care of it right before it even becomes a problem so i find that a very it got you know gave me goosebumps when you wrote that, when I saw that. I'm like, oh yeah, that's really, really cool. And then my very, very last question uh, always, what is your favorite quote or question? I love this. So uh, my favorite quote, I don't know if it's motivational, it is for me, uh, is it is our choices that show what we truly are 
far more than our abilities. And for anyone who's a Harry Potter fan, uh, that's a Dumbledore quote. It's a Dumbledore and that's and I have loved it since I was a kid. Like if that quote wasn't in my life, I think I wouldn't have had a growth mindset before I read Carol Dweck's books. You know, when I read that, I was like, oh, I do a lot of that already. I still have places to improve. But I was very focused on being like, you can always choose. You always have a choice about how you're going to respond to things. And that's not to diminish the fact that a lot of people don't have choice in situations that they're in, definitely in terms of poverty and inequality in the world, for sure. But in terms of how you think about things, the actions that you take in a given moment, what you're going to do going forward, there's always some element of choice. And for me personally, being privileged, living in you know a wealthy country, I have a lot, a lot of choice. And it's not just about what you can do it's about the kind of person that you are i think that comes back to our conversation right at the start around people who go into competition thinking i might break somebody's arm well i don't care if you have the ability to break somebody's arm if you make that as a conscious choice you're not a good person and at the end of the day i'm going to sleep well knowing that you know i move through the world trying to make it a better place for other human beings i'm not doing i'm not going about my life at the impediment of other people that to me is what that quote is about it's like you always have a choice it's not just about what you can do what you were born with I love that yeah I have this quote also written everywhere and it also resonated with me as a child because uh, I had some issues growing up where teachers with fixed mindsets were kind of like oh you're bad at this so you know you're not gonna make it in this world and I'm like um, years later you know pursuing a PhD so it is really possible so don't listen too much to um, these people and remind me like uh, I read lately something like um, when you believe that it cannot be done please do not disturb the person doing it mm, yes and I was like oh my god I was like yes this is it um, so yes yeah, from here I thank you very much Georgia it was lovely and I also now got to learn much more about your story because you listened to mine but I didn't really learn yours yet so I'm very grateful and um, also the moment you have location you know also later please let us know we can also of course put it in our stories just to make sure that people are informed so that they can join you thank you so much for having me it's been really fun Thank you, Georgia, for sharing your journey and future projects. To me, people like Georgia show by example how to rise and thrive in the martial arts world, without overlooking the struggles and obstacles that she needed to overcome. I cannot wait until her own brick-and-mortar Conscious Combat Club opens. In the show notes, you will find information regarding her projects and how you can get in touch with this lovely lady. Thank you.